Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and this is the podcast where we get to talk about the intersection of sports and business. Today, my guest is Dr. John Shaman. He's a cardiac rehabilitation and sports medicine doctor for the last 40 years, over the last 40 years. Dr. John, how are you today? Very good. Thank you. I love it. You're looking good in front of a beautiful fireplace. Got a nice tie on, man. I, I appreciate you. Uh, you're dressing up for me. No problem. Good stuff. So, John, the, the first question, Dr. John, I apologize. The first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Well, from a personal point of view, I do like a lot of sports. I've played a lot of sports in my time. And I guess in the early going uh, of my medical career, I was going to be a cardiologist. And I uh, kind of fell in love with the field of cardiac rehabilitation was within its infancy. And at that time, sports medicine was in its infancy. It, there weren't really any sports medicine doctors other than people that were in other disciplines, the orthopedic surgeons, maybe. Uh, but I, in Canada, was the first private practice in, in cardiac rehab and sports medicine. Um, as far as sports medicine goes, it was a field untapped. Um, and I really, in many ways, uh, paved the way to the per- current day with respect to that mm-hmm. uh, discipline. That is very impressive. And so how, what is that leap of faith like from your end to say, like, I see these two things that I'm very interested in, sports medicine and cardiac rehabilitation. But as you said, they're both kind of in their infancy. So, you know, this early on in your career, what is, how do you go ahead and take that leap of faith into something where, you know, not all the data, not all the science, not all the research is there yet, but it's something that you're still interested in? Well, that's for sure. As a matter of fact, I have a different view now than I did back in 19, in the mid seventies, when I first got into the field and training. Uh, and I guess at that time, <clears throat> I was a young, um, enthusiastic, uh, resilient kind of a guy. I'd never thought about having problems. But here I am, forty, just about 42 years later. And I've had a lot of roadblocks uh, because going into a field like this, they take a lot of time. <clears throat> and as you probably know, um, in the medical field, if you don't need to spend as much time, you can make a lot more money. Uh, but I've really not concerned too much about that. And I've spent a lot of time with people. And here I am. Uh, still working with great enthusiasm. And it's because every night before when I go to bed, I feel that I've helped more people. That makes it a lot easier to get up in the morning and keep going. Absolutely. Being grateful for the opportunity to help people. I'm grateful that you are able to go and do that and do what you do, help so many people within both of these fields. I think it is so interesting. And, you know, you, you brought it up a little bit. Um, you know, the you, you've changed. I, I don't want to say your mindset. I, I, I apologize. I forget the exact word you use, but your, your viewpoint on sports medicine has changed significantly. It sounds like over the last 40 years, you're still here to help people. You're still here to help people within the world of sports medicine. So I guess, how has your viewpoint changed and how has the industry or, or the discipline of sports medicine changed along with it? Well, that's another interesting question. Let me tell you, I think that, um, the way I see it, looking back, uh, at that time, sports was different. Um, a lot of people got into sports because they enjoyed playing a game. Uh, and even the pros, uh, either the NHL or the NBA or, or baseball or, or football, whatever, they, they all uh, loved the game, and that's how they got into it. And they found out they were really good, and, and they were paid well for it. Uh, unfortunately, the world has changed so much right now, and I don't think to the better with respect to the place that commerce plays in everything we do. Um, certainly in medicine, unfortunately, in science, commerce overrules uh, sometimes science, really. 
there's no question. Uh, there's examples of that every day, everywhere. Uh, and also in sports, um, you know, I observed, I have three daughters and I observed them going through the growing years and I saw them uh, take ski lessons. And at the ski lessons, um, they had to go into this competition at the end of the ski week. And uh, they were, especially one of them was really frightened and crying. She didn't want to go because she didn't think she'd perform well. And it was already at that time that it was seemed to be an expectation of young people to perform well. Mm -hmm. uh, and now parents expect their young athletes to make it to the professional leagues and make the big money. And, and you know, there's something wrong when, um, when an athlete playing one game can make as much money as a scientific researcher trying to find a cure for cancer makes in a year. There's something wrong with that. Um, so I, I don't know what to say any more than that, but that's the one thing that I see that's changed since those days is the amount of money paid to athletes and what that does to the general population and the potential athletes. I have many patients that are uh, Olympic hopefuls. I've had many patients that have been Olympic champions. Uh, have patients that have been, uh, you know, major successes in the international sports world, made many, many big dollars. I have one particular patient, I can't talk about patients for confidentiality. Mm -hmm. This fellow has made uh, possibly between 200 and 300 million dollars. And, um, and, but most of the people in that discipline that I've looked after, and there have been hundreds, if not more, uh, most of these are barely making a living now. Mm -hmm. so the difference between number one and number two and three, certainly between one and number 10, is so immense that it's something wrong with that. I completely agree. So I know many Olympic athletes. Um, I've interviewed hundreds of Olympic athletes at this point, and that is something that I'm truly on board with. You know, it is it is insane to me how some of these athletes, what they do for our country and, and you know, countries around the world and how they represent us on the biggest stage of sports. And it's still all the corporations that are taking all the money. So that is something um, I agree with you as well. I do feel like those scientists uh, researching cancer should probably get a couple more dollars. I do agree with you there. I don't want to take any money out of anyone's pocket, uh, but I do agree with you there. I wouldn't mind if some of these scientists, teachers, uh, you know, I hope they get paid a couple more dollars along the way too. We're really hoping for that. But uh, doctors as well, you know, obviously you're doing a lot there. And so that sounds like it's, you know, the sports field and everything that has evolved from it. And as you said, you're really grateful that you have the opportunity to help people every single day. Was this always something that you wanted to do? Did you always want to be a doctor? growing up or was it something that you for lack of a better term kind of fell into well you know what uh, in a way i fell into it um as i went through my education my parents were not educated people uh but they were not uh, they were smart people but just not had the education and both were factory workers so i my dad wanted for sure that i get the best education possible and he drove me to get that and I, he didn't have to try that hard and it worked out well um, and as I uh, went through my training, uh, I was actually interested in, uh, in scientific research and biochemistry. I have a degree in biochemistry before medical school, and I got a degree uh, in that. And uh, a friend of mine wanted to go into medical school, and he advised me I should go in. I said, well, I want to do scientific research. And he said, well, if you do it as an MD, you can do clinical trials. And so that's why I applied to medicine, because I could then do clinical trials mm -hmm. when I become a, a biochemical researcher. Anyway, everything changed so massively that he actually ended up not getting into medical school. He became me, and he uh, I just looked him up on LinkedIn. He's somewhere in the United States now. He was a Canadian. He's somewhere in the United States. He's retired now, and he had the, all these credentials and all the things he did. There would have been the things that I would have done. So it's funny how we switched places. 
so I went into medicine and, um, I, you know, it's all surreal to me now how that all happened. It's, it's funny how you can look back and feel that way. It is crazy how the world works sometimes. I, I, uh, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe in luck personally. Um, I think it's, you know, uh, not going to say divine intervention. I think that's a little over the top, but I do think there is a reason that you guys had that conversation. And clearly you're both in the places that you're supposed to be now, which I think is really interesting because now you're getting to help all the people that you want to. And hopefully that gentleman is doing everything that he wants to do uh, every day he wakes up. Hopefully he is as grateful as you are, which I think is very important. And, you know, with with that understanding, you know, again, almost falling into the field, like at what point did you start to, at what point did you start to have the conversation with yourself? Like, all right, you know, cardiac rehabilitation, that's pretty interesting. Sports medicine, again, these two fields that are that are butting up. At what point along in your career do you have to pick a, a discipline, uh, I, I guess I'll say, and say like, all right, this is where I'm going to focus my time moving forward rather than being a general practitioner of some sort? Well, you know, as I went through medical school, a lot of those decisions are made. Some people make them early on. Uh, I don't know that. I did exactly well. No, uh, what, what I what happened to me is that I found myself uh, be very adept and had a sort of special talent in reading electrocardiograms. Now you might say, what kind of a weirdo is that that talks about reading electrocardiograms? Uh, but I somehow clicked with that, and so I like the whole business of cardiology. I also like neurosurgery. I did a lot of neurosurgery. Believe what a varying difference. Um, but. Um, I ended up doing neurosurgery for about seven or eight years to help out a neurosurgeon that went into politics. You talk about changing careers. Well, this guy uh, went into politics after he was a esteemed neurosurgeon, uh, well known uh, in his neurovascular surgery. But he asked me if I'd take his place since I interned on their service. And I guess I didn't um, make too many mistakes. I held my own. And, and so I ended up being the assistant neurosurgeon. But in the meantime, I had this cardiology interest and I was actually admitted uh, into the training program at the, one of the greatest places in the world, Toronto General Hospital. And, and uh, I had that spot and I thought I was on top of the world. And I went to a meeting before that started, uh, my training in cardiology uh, on cardiac rehabilitation because the hospital I interned at thought it would be good for me to go and learn about this and bring that knowledge back to the hospital, which I did. But it did much more than that because I got so engrossed in this field. You may say, why? Well, because up until that time, heart patients were kind of cripples. If they had a heart attack, they couldn't do much of what they had did before. Their lives, as they previously knew it, were over. Uh, and what I saw with my mentor, Dr. Terry Cavanaugh, world pioneer, he at that time had taken heart patients and trained them and ran the Boston Marathon. And he was very popular because of that. Um, and uh, that caught my attention. And after a meeting, a symposium that I went to in 1975 or four, whenever it was, five, I guess it would have been. Uh, I went to him and I said, you know, I want to do this. And he encouraged me, but told me I'd have a lot of financial difficulties uh, compared to going into cardiology. And I said, well, I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it for doing what I need to do. And I'm sure glad here I am all these years later. And that's what I did. And he lured me in by showing me this brand new field and how patients didn't have to be cripples anymore. Uh, and now we can even, we have evidence now in science that actually shows that we can actually reverse the disease. Now, I'm not talking about reversing the damage done by a heart attack, but the artery blockage that leads to heart disease and leads to bypasses and ballooning and stenting and all those things that are very, very common. Now there's more bypasses done in the US or Canada than there are appendectomies. So it's a very popular surgery and my job is to try and help people maybe even avoid those procedures. And in a lot of cases, we can do that. 
And why do you think those surgeries are so common here? I mean, you know, one thing people could possibly point to is if there is this reverse, I'm sure there is then some work involved on the person's end. And we can kind of point to laziness, potentially obesity, I'm assuming has something to do with it. But what what can we do? What what can people do just on a daily basis that can make this a little bit better for themselves? You're certainly asking all the right questions because Thank you're bringing you. up answers that are exactly what I would have wanted to bring up. So in the modern world, um, let me say that um, taking the easy way out is always human nature. So the easy way out is if you have a choice of doing a task and you can do it easier, less trouble for you, uh, that's what you do. And um, unfortunately, that often leads to poor decisions. It's a lot easier to sit on the, tele- uh, on the couch watching the television as your favorite athletes are performing their duties out in the field or on the ice or on the wherever. Um, it's a lot easier to do that than it is to go out and actually play your own sports because that, you know, and then gradually people, by not being as active and because we have an abundance, overabundance of food as a rule in the modern world, uh, we're eating too much and maybe the nutrition isn't that adequate. Maybe we're eating foods that are not uh, as nutritious and maybe over uh, overladen in calories and therefore we build up weight. And the more weight we have, the less sports we do, the less activity we have. So it's a cycle. And I have many patients that have been referred to me, believe it or not, by, by heart surgeons who were, who were booked for surgery. But there's a waiting list in Canada because we have the socialized system. So if uh, in the U.S., if you've got the money, you can have it done like the next day or the same day. In Canada, not so. It takes time to get into the list and get the, uh, through the list, uh, the waiting list. Uh, so they, these surgeons have sent me uh, cases that were waiting for bypass. They'd heard about our success and they said to the patient, you know, while you're waiting, you may want to try this procedure by this Dr. Shaman um, and see if you can do it. It's hard to do. Many patients can't do it. But if you can, uh, I'd like to give you the chance. So they come to me and not all of them are able to do it. Some are. And they had never did neither bypass. And um, I respect those surgeons because in Canada, it's not maybe quite the same because there's a big waiting list. At that, sometimes it used to be as long as a year or many months anyway. So patients that didn't have need the surgery didn't really impact the surgeon's income or anything. Uh, so oftentimes you worry about decision making on the basis of your reimbursement for it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so patients came up to me after I spent literally two hours with one patient talking about getting the enthusiasm into them about the potential of trying this this method of lifestyle, diet, exercise, stress management, changing your personality, all these things that are part of what we need to do. Um, and and they say to me at the end of it, some some came up to me and say, they, they shake my hand, maybe even hug me. And nowadays we can't because of COVID-19. Uh, but they would say to me, Doc, you know, I really appreciate all the time you spent with me. Like, I, I've, this is unprecedented. I've never heard a doctor spending this kind of time. But, you know, Doc, the way I see it is if I have the surgery, I'll wake up. I won't even know what they did. I won't be there. I'll be, I'll be passed out. I'll be in la-la land. And, and, uh, and now I wake up and I can continue with the life that I've had, the life that I want to have. Whereas if I if I went the other route, I would have to change everything so much that I don't think I could do it. So I, I say, OK, well, that's your choice. I did my job of trying to give you everything to, so you'd make a decision. And uh, some people chose that. Uh, I'd rather go in and 
and be put to sleep and cut open with a circular saw to go through their breastbone. And at the end of doing redoing all their plumbing, taking veins out of the legs and taking arteries out of the arms and all the things that we do nowadays, arteries out of the chest to reroute them to the heart arteries. Uh, and then they, they wire them back together with stainless steel wire and, and the patient wakes up, doesn't know any about that and maybe feels a little rough for a while. And some of them say it feels like a truck hit them. Others say it's not quite so bad. And, and then they can keep living the life they did. But guess what? Guess what? It's going to happen again. Well, you know what? The big problem is nobody fixed why it happened. The surgeon didn't fix that. He did a good job of doing what he does. And the interventional cardiologist that puts the balloons and stents in, you've heard of those now, uh, that are very common now and, uh, to avoid bypass. Uh, none of those people address the reason of why this all happened. And the, the day after you're, you're out of the hospital and you're living your life again, that disease is continuing to go to press on inside of you because you didn't make any changes. So nobody wants to make change. That's a problem. Change. That's why we're all in such a big trouble right now with COVID-19, because we've all had to adapt to these amazing changes. They call it unprecedented, all these uh, descriptors that are out there. I agree with them all. And, and um, my life is unprecedented now because I have to do I still have to deal with my patients and help them. But I got to do over the phone and by video now, uh, which is a tough, tough goal. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine. I'm excited to talk about the the COVID-19 aspects and some of the things that you're doing and have been doing over the last 15-ish almost years um, to help the the respiratory and, and the lung health. I think that's going to be really interesting. But you're, you're, you're bringing up a lot of good points. I completely agree with you. The fact that, yeah, you can have your heart, you can have all those things fixed, but the problem is still there. So what's going to happen? It's going to just happen again, right? And I'm sure you've seen it time and time again where, People refuse to change the way they live because it's so easy, as you brought up before, that they can just keep eating the Oreos and keep eating the sugar and keep eating the fatty foods. And, oh, you're going to be in this position again in a few years because you haven't changed anything. And, you, you, you know, we've been talking a lot about cardiac health and, and cardiac rehabilitation. And I want to kind of weave that in with the sports medicine side a little bit more. Obviously, those things go hand in hand, right? Endurance athletes, they use their heart a lot. Normal people obviously do too. So where have you seen, I guess, the 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 overlap of what you do on the sports medicine side and the overlap of what you do on the, the cardiac rehabilitation and cardiac health side? Well, that's a pretty broad, uh, broad field. Um well, the common denominator of both my fields of, uh, of expertise that I've had all these years, uh, the common denominator is exercise physiology. And um, uh, some years ago, in 2007, actually, uh, I had a, um, an awakening, personally. I was athletic. Uh, I used to play uh, hockey uh, in organized leagues. And, and in medical school, I played in the medical hockey team. And and I played many other sports. Tennis was a big one. I became the doctor for the Canadian Open Tennis Tournament in 1977. Uh, and I was in that position for 13 years. And everyone thinks that looking after athletes is so wonderful. But everything I've done in my athletic work, work outside of my clinic, uh, has been free. Uh, I don't get paid. So I didn't get paid for those 13 years of being the doctor for the Canadian Open Tennis Tournament. It was a great time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. If I went back, I would do the same thing. Uh, I ran into some amazing tennis players, uh, Bjorn Borg. Um, I don't want to talk about things that are confidential, but certainly he was very happy with uh, what I did with him. He actually gave me a tennis racket that he used to win his last Wimbledon. Very cool. He has a number of them and they retire them. They're special rackets. He, he thought 
what I did for him was worthy of getting one of these very special rackets. Um, another one, um, Yvonne Lendl came to me and he gave me one of his purebred German Shepherd puppies that he was raising on his place in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, and, uh, you know, I had that dog until he finally died 13 years later. And uh, so, you know, I'm very blessed that way, even though I did it for no pay. Uh, it depends on what you look for as pay. I've had lots of pay, just that it wasn't monetary. Um, so what happened to me in 2006? Well, uh, despite all my efforts and playing tennis, et cetera, et cetera, I also was a skier. Um, I forgot to mention that I worked for 53 and a half weeks in Europe. With the, with the National Alpine Ski Team, the, the highest level ski team in Canada. And, um, and that was all for free. I worked 53 and a half weeks as a doctor. I mean, I, I don't want to blow my horn about that, but it just let people understand that not all doctors, a lot of people think doctors are just after the money, but they're not really. There's a lot of doctors working in the trenches out there trying to help individual patients one after the other. And I think we have to keep in mind that those doctors have to be thought about as well as maybe the ones that make it to the big time and get quite uh, wealthy. Uh, so what happened in 2006? I'm eventually getting there. <laughs> I, I bought some new equipment for my clinic um, to measure lung function. Now, let me tell you about lung function. Uh, lung function has two components, how big your lungs are, how much air goes into your lungs. And the other component is how well the air moves in the air tubes. Um, and the, the more air moves, the better your breathing is. And the bigger your lungs are, the better your, the better your respiratory uh, function is. So I bought new equipment because there was some newer stuff, newer computerized technology. I've always tried to stay on the front edge of technology in the, in the years gone by. And uh, I, I tried it out on a Sunday night after plugging it all in and putting it together from the box. And, and I, I breathed into it and I was a bit alarmed because I thought this machine is obviously not working right because I was only getting 4.7 liters of air. Um, what was I expecting? Well, in medical school, I, I was actually getting 6.8 liters. So here I am thinking I can't be that much different than what I was in those years. Um, why would I only be 4.7? It alarmed me. And I, I did it several times. And I thought the machine had to go back. And I saw the box there. I said, OK, I got to box it up and get it back there. It's not working. So I pulled out our machine that we've been using, which I knew was calibrated and working well. And I got 4.7 as well. So I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? Have I got some kind of a disease that is kind of brewing in there that I don't even know about yet? And I started worrying, started reading up, started doing other things test and look for reasons and I couldn't find a reason except that I stumbled on the reason I found out that it's totally statistically normal to lose 50 percent half of your lung function between age 30 and 70. so what I was seeing was the normal effect of aging on my lung function well that alarmed me because one of the things that I talk about now when I give lectures I talk about the fact that um that uh aging myself. So I feel that I'm one of the earliest uh, lifestyle MDs. Nowadays, there's a whole special feel like that. And I was possibly the first, I think pretty sure I'm the first one in Canada. Uh, because, you know, a lot of the ones that are doing it now have been practicing two, three, four years. And it's almost like a, a cult-like following. It's almost like social media mm -hmm. kind of stuff going, around, going into this field of lifestyle medicine. I've been doing lifestyle can, medicine since 1978. Can, can you define exactly what you mean by lifestyle medicine? Well, lifestyle medicine is is now done by practitioners, and they may not even all be medical doctors, but some medical doctors do that. And they work on people's lifestyle to reduce their future diseases or to reduce what they've already got. 
so from the heart disease point of view, which is obviously the big one for me, mm-hmm. uh, it's exercise, diet, stress management, and group support and personality. We try to get people to change their personalities if they got a risky personality. Uh, I have to watch out that you don't get me down a tangent. All of a sudden, I'll take a, a different route from where I'd planned to go. I'm happy to go down that route if we have time. But I'll let rope me, you back in. Don't worry. You're perfect, doctor. You're perfect. Okay. Let me let me go into uh, your question uh, without diverting uh, on a different route here. Um, so what happened at that time? Um, I found that it was normal to lose half your lung function. Well, I looked back over my career and I, I saw that we could affect aging. I mean, we can't change how many candles are on your cake, but we can sure as heck change how you function. And how you function matters more than the candles on your cake. If you're operating at a younger age, that's the way your body sees you. And that's the age that your body is working at. So if I get someone in and I test them and I find out that they're operating at a 30-year-old level and they're 58, and that's very common to see. Uh, Not as common as it is to see somebody who is 32 who's operating at 68. Uh, but we see that we see the discrepancy uh, so functional age is very important and functional age from the point of view of the heart we're very happy and proud to say that of all the patients we had including the ones that didn't didn't put out so much who weren't so diligent in their effort the overall numbers from the early years showed that we had a 25 to 27 percent improvement in cardiac function in the one to one and a half years of starting the cardiac rehab program which means that really another way to put that is that they operated 25 to 27 percent younger. And most people look forward to getting, I mean, they don't look forward to it, but they expect to get worse and worse as they age. If you do the right thing, you can actually reduce the age that you're functioning at. And that's what really matters. So here I was thinking, well, what can we do? This is a tremendous loss, 50 percent loss. And I suspect our forefathers, if we were to go back and make those measurements in the law of the lungs in those people, that we would not have had that much. Why do I say that with such certainty? Well, I think it's because it's very obvious that the need for movement in our world right now is dwindled away to almost nothing. We don't need movement anymore. Almost all the jobs that exist don't need movement. It's all done by machinery or mechanics or whatever, uh, mechanical devices, etc. So by not needing movement anymore, people don't move. And it's a lot more comfortable sitting on the couch Uh, eating a donut uh, and drinking a nice coffee uh, and watching sports on television than it is to go out, put on your running shoes and go for a run. Uh, So people will do uh, what's easier where there's less resistance. And and, um, and for that reason, um, I feel one of the biggest problems is people want the easy way out. Now, what people am I talking about here? Well, we started the conversation, but with me thinking about the patient and also the doctor, it takes absolutely very little effort, no time, and you get paid the same if you spend a long time with a patient or hardly any time in our, in our system here, uh, the more socialized type of medicine. Um, and the more people you see and the less time you spend, the better you're rewarded. Um, so as a doctor, if you write a prescription, uh, it's very easy. It takes, doesn't take very long. You can literally look at the test results look at the patient and in five minutes make up your mind that they need a certain medication to write a prescription and they can be out of your office sometimes in seven or eight minutes maybe sometimes it could be as long as 15 minutes but if you spend time with them teaching them how to change their life it's such a monumental effort that it can sometimes take several hours 
so that's why we have the problem. That's why, because it's so much easier to pick the easy way out. And my job is to convince patients that maybe they should look at not the easiest way, but the best way for their health and their future. And it's the long-term prospects, right? It's, you know, again, going back to, you know, you could take the short, easy way and the short-term games, honestly, probably it'll, it'll be a quick fix, but the long-term aspect of it, you know, we want to be on planet earth for a little while. At least I do. I'm having fun doing this thing. So I want to stay here as long as I can. And, you know, going back to it and, and I don't mind kind of going down that rabbit hole of really the lifestyle management, the personality changes. And it's, it's interesting to me because this is something that you've been trying to do since the beginning, right? With your, while getting into cardiac health and trying to get people to understand the rehabilitation aspect of, hey, if you start changing everything around you and, and all the things that you're putting into your body and how you're using your body, this is something that you can then utilize moving forward and be healthier and feel better. It's, it's always so interesting to me. Like I, I try and stretch and I try and drink a lot of water every day because I know those two things are very, very important. But how many people don't drink any water and how many people don't try and stretch at all? And you wonder why your back hurts or your legs hurt when you wake up or when you're at work. It's very confusing to me. So going back to that lifestyle management, how have you been able to utilize, you know, the the cardiac rehabilitation side of you and, and getting people to understand what is necessary there and pulling that into kind of the the entire, the encompassing lifestyle management, which you're dealing with now, especially understanding how the population has changed and how people have changed over the last 40 years? Well, you know, interesting you bring that up because uh, as I look back on that, when I started, there was only one component that was exercise. All the exercise physiologists were into this. And, and um, I remember attending all these early meetings. Uh, one of the greatest meetings was in New York in 1976 or seven. On the, it was called the, uh, the Academy of Medicine, uh, New York Academy of Medicine put it on. Uh, it was a one-off meeting and it was called the uh, Conference of the Marathon. And that was one of the greatest conferences of my life because all these people that were dealing with exercise were talking about the importance of exercise, et cetera. It was a great meeting. But since then, things have changed because at that time, diet wasn't even talked about. And stress management was something out there, but no one ever did much with it. Uh, and nowadays, we understand the importance of group support and connection between people, which is really uh, lost now with the COVID-19 problem. So over the years, I started adding more and more of these things. And it took me almost 10 years before I, I added a very definitive, aggressive, somewhat difficult diet. And it was really the work of Dr. Dean Ornish, who is well known, uh, who came up with um, research that showed that you could actually unblock the lesions in the arteries. And I went right on, on that. And I actually went to uh, San Francisco and trained under him uh, in, a, in a symposium, in a week-long training session. And and kept in touch in, in many ways of what he's doing and so on. So that was a big deal. And he also had the whole idea about um, stress management and, and, and personality. And I mean, it's, there's no question about the fact that pretty well every uh, institute of higher learning that has looked at uh, these kinds of factors with respect to uh, personality, for example, have agreed that uh, things like anger, hostility, perfectionism, being alone or being short fused, being overly competitive, being overly uh, um, uh, aggressive, mm -hmm. uh, this, this kind of personality leads to artery blockage. And um, so to change that is not so easy, uh, but it needs to be done. You have to address it. How how does that how does that those per, how do those personality traits actually lead to artery blockage? That I've never heard that before. That's super interesting. Well, it's hard to know because no one actually knows how the arteries or why they block. Uh, 
it's not known. Um, we do know that we appreciate and think that at least that our forefathers didn't have as much heart disease as what we have at, at the ages that we're having it. Um, although even that's difficult to analyze and to really come up, come to grips with. Um, but we now definitely have many institutions that have studied this uh, in, in universities and colleges uh, and, and, and have put out programs. And Dean Ornish felt that the group support, which was allowing people to connect with each other in these sessions that they had, the group support was very vital to um, getting a mindset that would, maybe it has to do with stress. Maybe if your mind is relaxed and you connect with people, maybe you don't have the same, um, maybe you don't have the same stresses, uh, stress hormones boiling in your system. Stress hormones are a big deal because they prepare you for fighting and fleeing. Okay, so every time you have stress, you're prepared for fighting and fleeing. And all of us have stress every day. And I often ask my patients, how many times have you been under stress where it was appropriate to fight or flee? And usually people will say, not in the last 30 years. Uh, you've never been able to fight or flee. Um, so with that in mind, we have to understand that the stresses of the world are, are uh, affecting us, our insides. Um, long ago, we realized that they could affect ulcer disease. Uh, and of course, now for many decades, we've known that it affects artery blockage disease, which of course is not just the heart, it's also the brain. Because the brain, if the arteries are diseased, uh, have a high chance of developing strokes. Um, the two kinds of strokes are hemorrhagic, where you bleed, or embolic, where you have a blockage caused in a similar way to a heart attack. That yeah. is just super interesting. And I guess, you know, stress there is, it, it stretches, stress is, it's interesting because it's kind of almost looked at as like, it's always a negative, which I don't totally agree with. I think there's some good stress. There's some good times you want to actually feel, you know, that fight or flight, as you've been saying, you know, I, I Maybe not to the maximum level, of course, that doesn't sound like fun, but every once in a while, I personally believe having a little pressure doesn't completely hurt, um, at least for me, I guess that's, it's also subjective to everyone. But but with that, I mean, the, the, the chemicals that come with stress that are released and, and then allow you to move in that direction and, and start to have those problems, I think it's really interesting, as you said, with the group, you know, being in a group and being around people, I mean humans are social creatures, right? I know there's introverted and extroverted, but there is some aspect of we want to be around each other. And this COVID-19, everything that's going on and kind of everyone staying to their homes, obviously the last couple of days have been a little different with some of the protests here, understandably. Um, how have you seen and what have you seen in, in those terms of with people, as you said, you bring up COVID-19. I mean, there is social media, but I actually think social media adds more stress rather than taking away stress, which is interesting. So how have you seen people you know, especially in your patients specifically with dealing with stress, not being able to be around other humans, but spending way too much time on social media and thinking that that might actually be the, a positive when really it's, it's just a huge, huge negative, uh, or at least what, what have you seen in those terms? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, you know, um, I, I agree with you. Nowadays, people might have a thousand friends on Facebook. Uh, I don't do much with Facebook. My staff do a bit with it. I have an account, but I don't know much about it. But having all these friends on Facebook is fine and dandy. But do these people actually have a real true friend? Mm -hmm. Many of them don't have any real true friends. They just have them on Facebook. Uh, and that's a different kind of a, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's certainly missing out on the kind of uh, friendship that we need, a close friendship, person to person kind of thing. 
uh, I think that's important. Nowadays with COVID-19, I can talk about that. And you brought up something that I thought I should just comment on very quickly. You're, yeah. you're very astute because there was a doctor, they call him the father of stress, Dr. Hans Selye, who worked, in, he was a Canadian actually in Montreal. And he did the early research and found out that when people are under stress, the adrenal gland, uh, when mice are under stress, I should say, and of course that extrapolates to humans, uh, they, they sacrificed the mice that were stressed uh, and they found that their adrenal glands, which is the stress gland on top of the kidney, uh, were, were very enlarged. So there are physical things that actually happen in your body when you have stress hormones circulating around all the time. And it's not good to have that happen. So I just wanted to comment that you really touched on that. And I thought that's important to understand. Uh, now, as far as COVID-19 goes, um, one of the things that um, I do now that we have to do all this unusual type of medical practices. We're contacting patients and, and checking with them to make sure how they're doing. And they're so appreciative. And we spend all kinds of time on the phone talking to them. And I'm, I'm busier now because I'm on the phone so much. It takes longer on the phone than doing it in person, actually. And people on the phone welcome the chance to chat. And, and uh, they certainly open up about many things. And I think that's all positive except um, maybe my not sleeping very much is maybe not so positive. But in any event, it, it is a good thing. Um, now, one of the things that um, uh, I have had is fireside chats. Um, and they're actually available to anybody on, on, my, um, uh, on my YouTube page. Uh, Shaman MD is, is the name, just Shaman MD, S-C-H-A-M-A-N-M-D, uh, where I've had these fireside chats where I've actually tried to give educational material on COVID-19 just to make sure that more of the public are online and understand the very important part they play in the battle against this virus. Too many people out there think that this virus is um, is not all that big a deal. It's the government trying to control us and all these conspiracy theories. But let me tell you, uh, this is a big deal. Uh, I mean, the last time we had something like this and 220 million people died uh, was 100 years ago. Um, and, um, you know, just, if, just because we haven't had anything like that for that long doesn't mean it can't happen. And we're trying everything possible to try and prevent that, which means that every single person plays a part. And the part they play is the part they play is to look after themselves to make sure that they're a survivor. If they look after themselves and become a survivor, that means that the virus didn't find a way to spread to them. And if a virus, see, a virus can't swim, it can't fly, it can't crawl. It's not alive. It can only be spread by human spread, either by touch or droplets or breathing the air that somebody else put out and you breathe it right after they did and the virus is hanging in the air. And it can hang in that air for up to 3.1 hours, according to the studies. Half-life is 1.1 to 1.2 hours and how long it stays in the air, half of the concentration. So this is a serious issue. And, and by patients understanding that to do what it takes to be a survivor, which hopefully most patients want to do anyway, they're part of the overall group battle against the virus. So they're part of the community battle, part of the, the country's battle against this virus. And if more people understood that, they'd be more likely to want to do something to be helpful, to help themselves and at the same time to help the, the community and the country effort. Absolutely. I, I agree. It's, it's clearly very, um, it is, is very contagious as we found it spreads very, very quickly. And I do think the stay at home orders have helped in, in many places around the country, especially I'm up here in the Northeast, many places in the United States. I can't say too much about Canada. I'm not going to lie. I don't know all the numbers, but I know up here in the Northeast, we've obviously, you know, kind of the stay at home orders have helped here in New Jersey specifically. We've seen the numbers drop a lot. So I'm very, very happy about that. I'm excited to see the future. I'm excited to get back outside, see some of my friends, give somebody a hug. I do miss doing that. Um, you know, 
as you said, we are social creatures, right? I, w- I want to see all these people again. And, and you know, I do want to hop back. So we were talking about and we kind of I don't I don't think we got off the rails because that was a very, very um, enjoyable part of the conversation. But as you were talking about, you had you checked your your lung health, um, oh, yeah. you know, the, the capacity. You've seen it decrease on what is a normal, let's say, you know, air quotes, a normal level. So this this device that you have created or helped create or, you know, I'll, I'll, again, don't want to put words in your mouth. The medical harmonica has been able to help increase that lung capacity, which is something that could then help fight off COVID-19 or at least help, you know, in, in some way, shape or form, help detract that virus. So tell me a little bit more about this device, what you've done with it and how it's been helping, how, what you've seen in your patients or your clients in either avoiding COVID-19 or, or helping get over the, the virus quicker. Well, uh, before I actually address this uh, topic with respect to the COVID-19, I should say that uh, what drove me to find a solution to this issue, if there was one, was the fact that in the cardiac field, I mentioned already that we had a 25 to 27% improvement uh, or reduction in aging, functional age. In the, in the musculoskeletal side, we also had a significant improvement. We can make the muscles fitter. And you said you do uh, strength and flexibility, stretching and all that. That all is important. Um, and that makes your musculoskeletal system younger. But the problem is the lungs themselves are not muscle, so you can't train them the same way. Uh, so you have to actually train the breathing muscles. So my initial goal was to see if we can strengthen the breathing muscles, of which I won't get into the details of the physiology and the anatomy, but they have in-breathing muscles and ex- exhale, in- inhaling and exhaling muscles. Now, obviously, the most important is inhaling because exhaling to some degree happens when you breathe in and relax your 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 chest mechanism kind of goes back the way it was and it, there's a certain amount of exhaling that happens almost like involuntarily if you relax your chest uh, but you wouldn't be able to do sports without without the muscles but the inhaling muscles would basically be uh, would be a really big problem you wouldn't be able to stay alive without those so I wanted to have a way of strengthening the muscles, including the inhaling ones. And I had a heck of a problem trying to find a way to do that because singers, opera singers, horn players, um, all of these people uh, ex- exercise more so the exhaling muscles. Um, and so I found out that there's this instrument called the harmonica. And I actually started doing training in it in 2007 after starting the research in 2006. I started training in the harmonica, trying to find a way to um, to see what we could actually present to patients that might be effective in, in research to find out what we can do. Um, so we did that for about a few years, uh, from 2007 until 2011. And I, I use a normal 10-hole diatonic, the one that many of us have owned. We've had it in our pocket, and a lot of people blow into it, and it sounds nice, but most people haven't learned to play it. Or if they play anything, it's some really simple little melodies. It's meant to play melodies, and to play melodies on one of these harmonicas involves uh, playing single notes uh, to play a melody. I'm not going to talk about music because uh, even though I've become more knowledgeable, I, I didn't really have a lot of this knowledge when I got into this journey. Uh, so uh, when you play multiple notes together, uh, that's called a chord on a guitar. You, you play many strings at the same time on a piano, many of the keys at the same time. Uh, that's chording. Um, and you can chord with a harmonica, too. So we started chording when I saw that the challenge to the lungs wasn't adequate for my purposes. It didn't challenge the lungs enough to get the benefit I was looking for. So we started chording, but it took away the musicality because now you've only got two. You got a blow and a draw chord. Um, and that just didn't satisfy the musicality very much. 
And um, it was working though. We were able to get, uh, we did train rhythms where you breathe in and out very rapidly. I won't demo any of that. I forgot to bring my harmonica actually. Uh, I could have demoed it if I'd have thought of it. But anyway, so um, the, the, uh, the new way of playing took away the melody, the, the playing melodies and tunes that you kind of grew up with and kind of thing, which was kind of nice, but it made the physiology better. Uh, so I had a chance to actually invent a medical harmonica. Uh, how that happened was, uh, I won't go to the story, but it was very fortuitous. It could, probably would never have happened because the oldest harmonica factory in the world had their CEO sitting in on my lecture I gave in Germany. Uh, and he sat in because he wanted to know who this doctor was that was buying harmonicas uh, at such a high, relatively high rate for the program. He wanted to know what this doctor was doing. Afterwards, he came up to me and he said, well, if you need to design a new harmonica to, to do your job better, let me know. And I, I went to town for about a year and came up with the medical harmonica. So instead of two chords blowing and drawing, it plays eight chords. Uh, and it does it in a way that's easy. Uh, four of those chords are dominant seventh. Don't worry about the theory. Um, but they, um, they address, uh, they make the music nice. Uh, you, can, uh, you can get that, but it's easy enough. All you do is play right side, left side of this little harmonica and blower draw gives you the four main chords so we can actually play in two different keys. So it's opened up a whole new ball game. So how does this relate to COVID-19? Well, um, as soon as I started to hear from different sources, some of them in the US, uh, famous uh, talk show uh, uh, individuals that I don't know much about because I don't have time to watch television. Um, and uh, they were commenting about the fact that you had to actually fight the virus while you've got it instead of lying low like you do with most diseases until you recover and then start rehabilitating physically. This guy and others in England, famous people, commented on how important it is to actually go into heavy duty training of your lungs or working with heavy breathing exercise early on in the disease. And you did better that way. And the, the effect of the disease on you in the early going was less. Now, I don't know what science there is behind it, but I've heard doctors also talking about that uh, online uh, where I've done some hunting to see if there's any truth to this. So it seems that there's a, there's a recommendation of breathing. Now, of course, I'm more used to doing breathing in the rehabilitative phase after the person recovers from a, an illness or a disease or a heart attack or, or whatever. Um, and so we do this afterwards. And, and, um, and so I think there's really three components how exercising the lungs. In my particular case, it's using the medical harmonica. Um, and the three phases are, number one is trying to avoid problems by being fit already. I mean, evidence suggests to us that in many diseases, I'm not sure all of them, but many diseases that you're fit in that particular area of the body that we're talking about, uh, then your likelihood of being impacted by the disease and getting it will be less. If you're fit, you're gonna have less impact from the disease. So if we can make people's lungs fitter and they should get this disease, I don't see why that would not apply because it does everywhere else. Secondly, rehabilitatively, okay, uh, from the early going, I've already mentioned that. I'm going by what I've heard out there in the media, on the internet, uh, and because we've already got the system in place, it doesn't hurt to give this as an option. And then rehabilitatively is afterwards because we know that most people who uh, suffer this disease where it gets into their lungs, even though they recover and seem they've recovered, they still have residual findings on, on testing of the lungs, uh, on imaging of the lungs. They can see these, these changes that persist afterwards. That is very interesting to say the least. I think, and it makes sense because it is a respiratory virus that it's going to 
affect your breathing in some capacity. I guess with that, like how, what have you, have, has, have you seen any successes? Have you seen it? Have you gotten any feedback from people that have had COVID-19 or uh, people that haven't had it and, and seen, let's, let's stick with the have, have you heard any feedback or any successes from people that have had it that now are able to say, you know, after using this for an extended period of time, they're feeling better, they can breathe more or, or any, anything along those lines. Well, you know, I can talk about anecdotal cases, and that's not science. I got to point out at the top that I can't talk about anything that's a controlled trial or anything along that line. And certainly of my own patients, I'm working so damn hard that they don't get this disease. Very few have got it. Uh, a few have got it when they came back from Florida and they didn't do all the right things and, and they've spread it to others as well. Uh, and a few of them have been in the harmonica program who have the medical harmonica and are using it daily. And I've talked to them and they say that they find that if they use the medical harmonica prior to doing their aerobic exercise. Now, I don't want to say that aerobic exercise doesn't help your breathing. It absolutely does. But the medical harmonica fills in on the requirements that are not part of the aerobic effort. So, but they say that by using the medical harmonica before they get on their exercise bike or before they go for their brisk walk or whatever, makes the walk and their exercise, uh, whatever they use, uh, uh, easier to do. Uh, and of course, we recommend that people do that, that uh, before they go out, it's almost a different kind of a warm up by using what? the harmonica before yeah. they do their aerobic training. Why? Why? What is it that is it? Is it more oxygen to the rest of the the body like what have, have again i understand if there's no controlled studies but what is your your speculation or what have you seen in your clients that make it so if they use this then as you say their their aerobic training is easier well let me let me comment on, on something you talked earlier about stretching and so on i want to just comment a lot of people think that warm-up is stretching it is not stretching is, is on its own right stretching and range of motion is something that athletes should do depending on their sport it would vary a bit uh, but warm-up is doing what you're going to be doing at a lesser level. So I, I'd like to define that separately. So standing Thank around you. stretching before going for a run, that's all important. But I don't call that the warm-up. I call the warm-up doing what you're going to do at a lesser level and building up. Well, if what you're going to be doing is going to be using your lungs and your heart and your aerobic system. The lungs are part of that. So if you can do the exercises with the medical harmonica ahead of time, that would be an avenue to, to get your warm up in a higher gear. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Now, awesome. I also know, I also know some studies from Britain. Now this is at high <laughs> levels of high level of competition uh, levels in Britain um, of athletes performance have shown that those who strengthen their breathing muscles actually improve their performance. I know the studies were done in cyclists and they, they made a difference of being, you know, in the top 10 versus being in between 20 and 30 uh, in their cycling by, by strengthening the breathing muscles. And normally people strengthen their breathing muscles to the little extent that they get from doing their sport. Whereas we're now recommending doing extra exercise to actually strengthen the breathing muscles. How strong can we get them? To, how, how much improvement? Well, when we look at patients that are really diligent, because we didn't want to include people that weren't diligent because that doesn't give us the right answer. So we, when we looked at patients who were really diligent, we actually saw an improvement in breathing muscle strength. Keep in mind the 25 to 27% with the heart that we talked about. Now we're getting 50 to 60%, which is like mind boggling, uh, way beyond what I ever expected. Diet, exercise, nutrition, breathing. I love it. 
I love it. Dr. Shaman, this was absolutely incredible. I guess my last question, I know we're, we're right about butting up against time and I, you've, you've gotten a lot of emails while we've been on here. So I want to make sure you can go answer those. But what have you seen in terms of athletes? You know, as you said, you know, increasing their breathing, how, you know, you were talking about before you're a very active man and you were doing a lot and you still saw your, your breathing reduced at a normal rate. When it, when it comes to athletes, how, what does that rate look like? Is it different? Is it the same? And is this something, I mean, it sounds like every person should be using one of these medical harmonicas if it is available to them. If there is a link, please send it to me so we can all go buy one. But what, in terms of athletes, what have you seen with the, the reduction in, in lung capacity? Well, you know what? Um, we'd really need to do ongoing testing over a longer period of time. We test individual athletes when they come in for a, a physical examination and a test, a treadmill testing and so on where we look at their aerobic capacity as well as their lung function, both how much air goes into the lungs and also how well the air moves in the air tubes. Uh, so we do that and we can tell them where they're at and we can compare it to the norm for their age, which is normally what we've always been doing. But we've really not gone back and had athletes that we tested like 30 years ago and looked to see what happened. But I think the best I can do with the smaller numbers that we have in this, in this regard is that an athlete is already fitter when they come in at 30 years of age. And by the time they're 70, they may still be fitter and higher, have higher numbers, but the percentage may still be the same. Although I can't, I can't be sure of that. I do know that people like breath hole divers, opera singers and horn players uh, seem to have less aging. And my main job here was to reduce aging, uh, reduce the aging of the lungs to make the lungs last longer. Make the lungs last longer. I love it. John, uh, doctor, this has been absolutely incredible. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Dr. John Shaman, cardiac rehabilitation and sports medicine doctor for over 40 years, creator of the Medical Harmonica. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.